Good morning. My name is Ardell Green. That's probably the last time any of you will hear this song here, Return to Sender. <laughs> this is the last in our series, uh, Return to Sender. And the title of the message is An Invitation to be Sent. This morning we're going to be turning to 2 Corinthians 5. In just a moment, we've got a couple of stops on the way. Let me say a few introductory things. We're going to this morning hear a powerful story about Amir's conversion. We're going to um, pray over a team being sent out to Houston. And for those who'd like to, we're going to be taking a trip to the cross. There's a sticker in front of you. So if you would just put your name on the sticker, I'll tell you about that later. Okay. The world that we live in has been crushed by bad news. Heavy rains, the hurricanes in Houston, Puerto Rico, wildfires out west, what happened in Las Vegas. But I'm very passionate about Jesus and the good news we have because I believe the good news that we have is better than the bad news of this world. So you can't be a follower of Jesus without joy. We sing about joy or an urgency to share. Some of us have lost that joy and urgency. So I've been asking the Lord to remind me through the week that we're in the fourth quarter and we need to have an urgency about evangelism, about sharing the good news of the gospel. Evangelism is taking the initiative in the power of the Holy Spirit to joyfully and urgently announce the good news of Jesus Christ to a world that is crushed by bad news. Last week, we talked about a person named Andrew. His story is found in John 1. <clears throat> Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist identified Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Andrew and John began to follow after Jesus, and as they followed him, Jesus turned to them and said, What do you seek? What do you want? Which is a profound question. What is it that you're after? And they said, where are you staying? And Jesus said, come and see. And they spent a day with Jesus in that house, with Jesus. And we don't know what Jesus said to Andrew, but we do know that he was transformed in that day with Jesus. He abided with Jesus. And the first thing that Andrew did was he went to search for his brother, Peter. He became an evangelist. He said to his Peter, we, we said to Peter, we found the Messiah. Now, we don't have any of Andrew's sermons. Frankly, he lived in the shadow of his brother. Whenever their two names are mentioned together in Scripture, Peter and Andrew, it often says, Andrew, Peter's brother. But Andrew was always bringing people to Jesus, which makes me think about how God used Andrew and how God wants to use us. There's five things I want to say we begin about Andrew and about us. That Andrew and us need to look around at our mission field. Some of you work in education. You're an administrator. You're a teacher. You're on a school board. Some of you work in business. You own your own business. You work for a company. Some of you work in the IT world. See, that becomes for you your mission field. Look around at your mission field. Where is God at work? Who seems interested? Who seems open and receptive? You know, the door only opens up for a little while, 
So who is God seeming to open a door for you in your mission field? The people you live beside, your extended family. Who is your mission field? And look up because God is able and he changes people through prayer. Not only are we looking for open doors, we're also praying that God will open some doors to us. I have found this correlation between praying for open doors and opportunities that God gives. And next few weeks, we're going to be doing a series called Divine Direction, which is about prayer and reigniting our prayer lives. Third, we look for ways to initiate and cultivate friendships. I know many of you have been pondering the question asked last week, how many non-Christian friends do we have? And the longer we are believers, the fewer non-Christian friends we seem to have. That's why Christians need to go to places where non-Christians are, to build friendships. I've been thinking about what if all of us here were able to open our homes, and then the weather's getting a little colder, and what if we made a pot of soup, and we simply invited people over? They could stay for 15 minutes, or an hour, or two hours. There'd be some joy and laughter in the house. We could share our lives. Is there something we can do to initiate friendships, to forge friendships, to get together? And then look forward to your next encounter. You know, when relationships are forming and connecting, they're life-giving. You want some more of that. You can't wait till you get together again. You remember each other's name, and that's pretty huge in forging a friendship, is know the person's name and know something about them. Then you begin to ask questions. You know, how did the job interview go? How's your mom doing? How'd the tests turn out? And then look after people, making sure that they get connected and discipled. And that's exactly what Jesus did. When Andrew brought his brother Peter to him, Jesus said, follow me, and I'll make you into a fisher of men. So what we see there in discipleship is that his brother began to follow after Jesus, his life was transformed by Jesus, and he joined on mission with Jesus. God would use Peter very mightily for his kingdom. A few years later, Jesus was walking with his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, the town was named after Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the son of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was assassinated by some Roman senators, but after his death, he had became deified. He was considered a god. Julius Caesar, to the Romans, was considered a god. And his son, Caesar Augustus, was considered a son of a god. So now, that's the background. So Jesus and his disciples are walking toward this town, Caesar, uh, Caesarea Philippi, and as they're walking along to this town, Jesus asks the question to them, who do people say that I am? How am I trending on you know, the internet? Like, What are people saying about me? And some say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus became very personal. He said, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter raised his hand, you know, the one who he'd met there. He said, ooh, 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 I know, I know, I know. Okay, Peter, what do you say? You are the Christ, the anointed. You are the Messiah, the King. 
the long-awaited hope of Israel. You are the son of the living God. Do you understand how important the confession that Peter made was? Jesus said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter. My father is in heaven. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Upon this confession, this rock, this cornerstone, my church will be built. The big question that everybody must wrestle with in this room and out of this room is, who is Jesus? That's a great question to ask somebody this week. Who to you is Jesus? Is he an imposter? If he's an imposter, then he can simply be ignored. Is he merely a good man? If he's a good man, we can learn some lessons from his life. Is he simply a good teacher? His teachings are recorded in the Bible. If so, we should pay attention to them. But if he is the Christ, his true identity is the Savior from whom we receive salvation. He's the Redeemer who redeems our lives. He's the King that we bow down to. He's the hope of all mankind. Well, Peter was with Jesus when he was arrested, and he warmed himself there in the courtyard while the trial took place. And apparently, from some distance, Peter saw Jesus there on the cross. Never forgot that scene. He was visited by Jesus on the resurrection day. And then Jesus asked his disciples to come up to Galilee. And then he made this announcement to them. This is what Jesus said. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. So go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lo, I'm with you always to the end of this age. Go and make disciples. Jesus' disciples were primarily focused on Jerusalem and the Jews. So this is what I think happened. God knew that the Gentiles needed to be reached. And he had somebody who spoke Greek and was a Roman citizen, was raised as a Pharisee, but now he'd become oppositional to the church, was trying to destroy the church. So God met him on the road to Damascus. His name was the Apostle Paul. And God completely changed the direction of his life. He wrote half of the New Testament and would spend 30 years planning churches. For this last scripture I'd like to bring to is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at the 14th verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is what it reads. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, 
not counting men's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. In this section of Scripture, Paul outlines to us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is what God did in Saul's life. When a person is regenerated, they receive new life. When a person is redeemed, they're purchased out of slavery. And when a person is reconciled, what happens there is somebody who is alienated from God becomes reconciled to God. At one point, Paul was estranged and hateful and alienated. But when God reconciled Paul to himself, the enemy became God's friend. When two people are enemies, adversarial to each other, and they finally become friends with one another, we say they've been reconciled. All people have disagreements and conflicts. God gives us the grace, the courage to face those conflicts. And when we begin to face those conflicts, we go through what I'll call the tunnel of chaos. (laughs) And if we'll go through the tunnel of chaos, facing those differences, where hurts become unburied, where hostilities are revealed, where tough questions are asked, reconciliation is possible between estranged people. So let me make four points about this task, about this passage. Number one, the task that we are given is to persuade people, not debate with people. Verse 11, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade people. We are called to persuade, not to manipulate, not to debate. (laughs) The work of evangelism is about persuasion. We invite you to worship the true and living God, to listen to our words, to see our deeds, to see how we respond to catastrophes. In the midst of chaos and natural disasters and terrorist attacks, through our steadfastness and our perseverance and our love, we draw people into a relationship with God. Many Christians I know are not that good at persuading, but they want to be good at debating (laughs) because they want to be right. You know, you can be right and have a wrong attitude and be wrong. You follow that? The task is about persuasion, not about debating. Secondly, the motive for evangelism is love and not hate. It says in verse 14, you see it, for the love of, love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ drives us. The love of Christ motivates us. Is there a, great, a group that you hate? Well, Pastor R, there's the Democrats. Nervous laughter. <laughs> but then there's the Republicans. 
Let's not forget the NFL players that are not bowing their knee. Do you hate the players that don't bow their knee? I have in front of me my water bottle. It's pretty full of water. But you know what? I can't see from your perspective. What do you see on the front of my water bottle? What's it say? Let me have good eyes. It's Deer Park. Right? <laughs> Deer Park. See, I can't see what you see. There's only one way that I can see what you see. You know what that is? For me to come around from my perspective and look at your perspective. You know the problem we have in our culture? We sit from our perspective, but we're not paying attention to someone else's perspective. To some, not taking a knee has to do with injustice, inequality, brutality, mass incarceration. Are we taking the time to hear someone else's perspective and love them? I'm here to love. I want to see life from someone else's perspective. Can I tell you that the person who doesn't take a knee, I want someday to take a knee for Jesus, to know Jesus and his great love. So perhaps God has put me in this person's life to show them the love of God, not the disdain and hatred. You know, love is stronger than hate. Third, the mission here, if you'll look, is to see reconciliation, not division. All this is from God. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. The old life is dead. The old nature has been buried. The old lifestyle is dead and gone. All things are new to that person. All this is from God who has reconciled us to himself. We were estranged, alienated from God, and God has reconciled us to himself. And every person in this room has a story to tell about how God has reconciled you. Coming now to share is my friend Amir Rashidian, who grew up in Iran, and God brought to himself. November 25th, 1995, a phone call changed my life. And that phone call is the reason I'm here today. See, ever since I was a little kid, I had a dream. That dream was to become the world's greatest doctor. I wanted to help people, heal people, save lives. The problem was I have dyslexia. I didn't know I had dyslexia. I just thought I was slow and not so smart. So that meant I had to work extra hard and put in extra time to get the grades that I needed. And I did that. I, I was near the top of my class throughout high school. Even first three years of college, I did really well. I even had the extracurricular stuff, you know, where you volunteer in hospitals, look good on your resume, and, and you do internships and, and publish papers, new research. Uh, then came time for the MCAT, the Medical College Admission Test. <clears throat> Excuse me, test. And this test has a verbal section called reading comprehension, where you have to actually read these passages and answer questions. Well, I can't read very fast, so I was barely halfway through that test when time ran out and my score was down here. So two weeks into my senior year in college, 
when all of my friends are getting their letters of acceptance from medical school, I'm realizing my dream's not coming true. So I got really depressed. I decided that the last three years and all the years that I worked hard was an absolute waste of time and I didn't need to continue. So I stopped going to classes and I started drinking. I, um, I had a college roommate who was a heavy drinker, Jason, and I started going to the bar with him in the evening and we'd drink all night and come home, go back to the dorms in the morning, sleep all day and drink again at night. We did that for two months, two whole months. One day we walked into the bar with Jason and within the first 10 minutes we had a $90 tab hmm. and Jason took a drink, slammed his glass on the counter, he looked at me, he said a real man can hold his liquor. I don't know why he said it, but it bothered me a lot. It, it really hit home because my image of a real man was different than what I looked like right then and there because I knew a real man can stand up straight and walk straight, doesn't slur his speech. Real man doesn't throw up in public. Real man doesn't run from responsibility. A real man doesn't walk away from his dream. I wanted to be that. Hmm. So I put money on the counter, walked out, went back to the dorm, I slept that night. The next day I went to class. First time in two months. And see, when I was a freshman, our classes had over 100 students. Nobody knew if you showed up or, or not. But as a senior chemistry major, my classes were advanced experimental organic chemistry, descriptive inorganic chemistry, physical chemistry, instrumental analytical chemistry. We had 5 to 15 people in each class. I was noticed. So I sat there in class. After class, I went up to each professor, and I begged, will you let me take the final? I haven't been here. They were shaking their head going, there's no way. You are not going to catch up. You're way too far behind. It's not possible. But finally, I got them all to agree. And then I packed up my books and moved out of the dorms, went back to my mother's house. And I would study from 6 a.m. to 2 a.m. the next day, sleep for four hours and do it again. I did that for 10 days. And then it was that day, November 25th, 1995. It was the Friday after Thanksgiving. I woke up 6 a.m. I was exhausted, so exhausted I could barely walk. I made it into the shower as that water started to pour over me. I got this urge to cry because mm. the more I had studied, the more I'd realized this is not possible. I'll never catch up. And I felt helpless, worthless, hopeless. And I started to pray. And uh, I asked God, what's going on here? What am I missing? How did I get in this mess? How am I going to get out of this mess? More importantly, are you going to help me, God? And right there, I started to remember my mother reading the Bible. See, my mother had a friend named Nancy. Nancy would come over, and the two of them would study the Bible in the evenings. And throughout my high school years, when I'd come home, they would say, come read with us, Amir. And I'd say, no thanks, go to my room. Even throughout college, during the summers, whenever I was home, same thing, go to my room. But I could hear them in my room. And I heard about Jesus. I, I, I learned about his birth and his life, his miracles, his death, his resurrection. That day in the shower... I said, God, is that what you want? Is that what I'm missing? I really felt like God said, it's time for you to believe because I love you. And I dropped to my knees and prayed. I asked God to be my Lord, my Savior. I promised I'd follow him all the days of my life. Hmm. You know, peace filled me and I felt good. I felt joy. I was right with God now. And I went back to the books and I started studying. I still had my dyslexia and I was still exhausted. But you know what? It started to make sense all of a sudden. It was amazing. I, I was able to relax and study. So I said, I'm going to study for 50 minutes every hour. I'm going to pray for 10 minutes. <laughs> so I did that. Pray 10 minutes every hour until 2 p.m. that day. 2 p.m., 
I just finished praying for 10 minutes, and I said, God, do you hear me every time I call out to you? <laughs> I mean, you've got millions of prayers coming at you from so many people all at the same time right now. Do you have an answering machine? Is there, is, is there, a, is there an executive assistant taking messages and, and notes for you? How does that work? Are the angels helping you? Do you delegate? And uh, so the question is, every time I call out to you, do you hear me? The phone rang right when I said that. Hello? It was my mom. She said, I'm over at Nancy's. We're studying the Bible. Nancy wants to talk to you. <laughs> hey, Amir. She didn't say hi. Hey, Amir, I just need to tell you, every time you call out to God, he hears you. I was back on my knees crying. She just hung up. So... November 25th of this year, it'll be 22 years oh, since the phone call. Praise God. For 22 years, never once have I doubted that he hears my prayers. Hmm. If you've ever felt that, if you've ever had that doubt like I did, maybe I need to tell you what Nancy told me. Every time you call out to God, he hears you. So if you're wondering how the story ended, I did pass my classes, I did graduate, <laughs> and I'm going to share more with you over the next two Sundays. So I hope you'll join me for that. Thank you. Thanks for that. Pretty amazing, huh? Pretty amazing stuff. The last thing I want to say to you is we have an assignment to be an ambassador. An ambassador is somebody who is sent they represent the interests of the king, and they're making an appeal to others be reconciled to God. We know that all of heaven celebrates when just one sinner repents. Think about what Jesus was teaching us and the stories about the shepherd and the woman with the coins and the father with his sons. There was a shepherd. He had a hundred sheep, and one became lost. He went searching. When he found that sheep, he rejoiced. And the woman just had ten coins, remember? And she searched the whole house. She swept it high and low. And when she found it, she rejoiced. And the father, when his son, who was estranged from him, came home, smothered him with kisses and rejoiced. See, every person has value, and every person's worth searching for and when that person comes home, there's rejoicing. I've wondered <laughs> what the party in heaven must be like. I imagine a great ballroom, an ornate ballroom, with hundreds of round tables, white tablecloths, nice flowers on them, delicious food, it's heaven, plenty of wine to drink, sweet fellowship, joy and laughter. It's just an incredible place. And imagine the head table there is the Father. And, uh, you know, it's this great celebration. <laughs> and the Father, you know, clinks his wine glass and says, I have an announcement to make. And there the angels kind of lower down this banner from heaven. <laughs> it has the name of a sinner, you know, who's come home. A sheep that's been rescued, a coin that's been found. It's a student, it's a person, and there's this raucous celebration in heaven. 
And then I thought about this party, you know, same scene, ornate ballroom, round tables, white tablecloths, this banner being lowered down, angels, you know, bringing forth this. <laughs> and the father clinks on his wine glass. And there's somebody we want to celebrate, and his name is R. Dallas Green. See, I grew up in a home where I wasn't very celebrated. Birthdays were often forgotten. My mom was busy. My dad was preoccupied. Nobody made a big deal about me. But there was this party all across heaven when I came home because a sinner had been reconciled to God. Something dramatically had changed in me. But it gets better than that. Imagine again this ballroom with tables and tablecloth, great food and the angels, and they're lowering down a banner. The Father clicks his glass. It's a celebration for you. There's another person who came, and we're going to celebrate, and there's raucous laughter and joy in heaven for every one of you who's a believer. I long for every person to be loved by the Father, to be cleansed by the person of Jesus Christ, and filled with the Holy Spirit to be celebrated in heaven. So I want you to take that sticker out. You should have two, and now you're going to know what it's about. <laughs> Some of you are saying, Pastor R, if you want me to do something, I'm out. Now, <laughs> I have this rebellion inside of me, too, about public places like this, like, don't tell me to do something. Well, I'm not going to ask you to do this for me. I'm going to ask you to do this for the, to the glory of God, to spread his fame. I want you, if you haven't done it yet, to write your name on one of those uh, sticky things. You say, Pastor, what am I signing up for? Well, you're not signing up for anything. But I'd like you to remember, when was the time the banner in heaven was lowered with your name on it? Now, for me, it was June of 1979. I was 21 years old. If I were filling out the sticker, I'd put on there, R. Dallas Green, June 1979, because heaven broke into a party over me. Now, some of you are breaking into a cold sweat <laughs> because you got your name down, but you're not sure the banner has been raised for you or lowered for you. So let me explain the gospel. Can I do that just in a moment? Over there is a cross. Jesus died on a cross. And all religions of the world say, you've got to do something and do it right. If you don't do it right, there's a big punishment. Christianity is not about what you have done to earn God's favor. Christianity is about what Jesus did on the cross for you. It's been done. The work has been done. God has reconciled us to himself. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So, some of you who aren't in yet, you might put down today's date as the day when you decided to follow Jesus. Some of you may want to put a question mark. I'm not really sure, Pastor R. Some of you might want to put the word soon. I'm just going to do it soon. It's not today, but it's going to be soon. I promise you. I don't know what would be on your sticker. But then I want to say something else to you. There's a whole world of people 
that need to know Jesus. And if God has laid somebody on your heart, would you put their name down on us also on a sticker? That's your second sticker. In just a moment, we're going to sing the song, Take My Life and Let It Be. And I'm going to invite you all with your stickers <laughs> to come and stick it to the cross. Because you have been reconciled to God and God has given to you a ministry of reconciliation, a message of reconciliation, that God is not angry with you, that God is your friend, that God has repaired the relationship, that what he did on the cross was sufficient. That's the good news we bring to this world. So I'd like you to be intentional now and put the name of somebody that God's put a, given you a burden for onto the cross as a step of faith. That God, we're praying for this person to come into your kingdom. You understand? Good. Let me pray. Father, hallow and sanctify this moment as we hearken back to the great work you did on the cross to bring us to yourself. And perhaps even now, Lord, you're drawing somebody who wants to follow you, Lord, who wants to confess you as Amir did, that you are Lord and Savior, confessing that, yes, I've sinned, but the price of the cross, the payment of the cross was sufficient for my sin. I believe and I trust in Jesus and I want to walk with him. Father, show me the path forward. We pray in Jesus' name.